Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32 together. This is going to be our main passage for this morning. And we're going to do quite an in-depth study into the passage here. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this chapter is actually a song of Moses. Uh, It's very interesting that we're told specifically that this is a song that Moses gives. And it's his final parting words to the people of Israel as they're on the border of the promised land. This is the very last thing that Moses is going to say to the Israelite people. And as he gives this song, he actually begins to speak prophetically. He looks at the future of what Israel will be, and he sees that in very short time, Israel is going to fall into apostasy. They're going to fall into idolatry. And so he begins his song with the words that Sarvel spoke at the beginning, talking about God's justice, his faithfulness, that he uh, deals rightly, and uh, about all of the provision which God gives. And then this is immediately contrasted with the unfaithfulness of uh, Israel and their lack of loyalty to God and to his covenant. So picking up where we began in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5, we read the following. They have dealt corruptly with him, that is God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? And just going to quickly share my screen. Good thing I remembered this (laughs) sooner rather than later. So immediately we're told here that the people of Israel, despite everything that God has done for them, they're going to turn their backs on God. And if we think about what God has done for them, uh, even after the Exodus, it's a lot of things. So he brings them out from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He provides food for them. He brings water out of rocks. He protects them from scorpions and snakes. He makes sure that their shoes never wear out. Uh, He gives them multiple military victories. So he keeps them physically safe from attacking armies. And of course, he's about to give them right now the promised land. So God has done over and above um, these incredible things for Israel. And yet Moses says that the people will deal corruptly with God, that they are a twisted and crooked generation. And I love what he says in verse six, is this how you repay all of the things that God has done for you? After everything he's done, you're going to fall into idolatry and apostasy. You're going to fall away from the God who's done everything for you. And then we get... uh, Moses decides to bring his readers or his listeners' attention back to a very, very old story of God's covenant faithfulness. Uh, We read it in verse 7. Moses is going to bring the people of Israel's attention back to a time of showing God's faithfulness 
to the people of Israel. So verse 7 says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will tell you. So we, Moses, he's asking us to go all the way back in history. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Okay, so we have this idea there's some old event in history Moses wants to tell us about. But what is it? We find out in verse 8. He tells us the event that he wants us to think of. Verse 8 says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So Moses tells us, let's look back at the story of the Tower of Babel as an example of God's covenant faithfulness. Now, of course, at the Tower of Babel, there is this great rebellion against God. And God, he divides up the nations. Moses tells us he gives the nations their inheritance. He fixes the borders of the people. And how is this division decided? He reads, he says, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, who are these sons of God? Well, we read about them in other areas of the Bible, such as Job chapter 1. The sons of God, uh, they come into God's court for a meeting. They, they appear to be representatives or stewards who work on behalf of God. These are angelic beings who uh, work in cooperation with God. Now, some of you may be a bit confused and scratching your heads. You may be looking at your Bibles and saying, well, when, I, when I'm having a read, it says, God fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. So why is it that we have two readings? If you pick up some Bibles, it'll say the sons of Israel. And if you have a look at other Bibles, it'll say according to the sons of God. So which is, which is it? Which is Moses trying to tell us, because there's a big difference between these two readings. We want to be absolutely sure what Moses is trying to tell us. Is it according to the sons of Israel or according to the sons of God? Well, thankfully, we are able to figure out which of these two is perhaps a more reliable reading of what Moses originally said. And the way we can do this is based on looking at uh, old manuscripts of the Bible. Um, the, so some of the latest manuscripts we have, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written in about 250 BC. And this is, um, so this is 250 years before the time of Christ. And if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have the reading according to the sons of God. It isn't till about a thousand years later, after the time of Jesus, that some manuscripts start to say the sons of Israel. So this is not only a thousand years after the time of Jesus, this is nearly three, four thousand years after the time of Moses. So only a thousand years after the time of Jesus did some manuscripts begin to say according to the sons of Israel. Whereas the earliest or the latest, the closest to the time of Moses, have this understanding of 
according to the sons of God. Now, that's a very big difference, but that's, that's a good detail to know about um, the text. But we, wanna, we really want to be certain that uh, this has big implications uh, for our understanding of the text. So let's continue reading what Moses says to understand what, he, what idea is he trying to convey to us. So let's continue reading um, verse 9, verse 8 and 9 again. So when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So what is the contrast here? Moses is saying at the Tower of Babel, the, the borders, the nations of the people were given according to the sons of God, these, these angelic beings who work uh, in cooperation with God. In contrast to these other nations given to these sons of God, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the people of Israel belong to God. And it's in contrast with the other nations who belong to these other, uh, these other beings. In contrast with that, Moses says, but the Lord's portion is his people. So who belongs to God? Israel. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Let's continue reading verses 10 through to 12. This, this narrative is continues to go on of God picking Israel. Remember, Moses is trying to remind his people, remember God's faithfulness to you at the Tower of Babel. It was at the Tower of Babel that God chose Israel to be his special people. And of course, uh, the very next chapter after that, Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. So Moses says, even before Abraham at the Tower of Babel, God had chosen the Israelite people, to be his special people. So Deuteronomy uh, 32 verse 10, it says, God found them in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. So again, this contrast is pulled together. Who is it that's been over and over again repeatedly faithful to the people of Israel? It's been God. God's the one who found them in a desert land. God is the one who encircled them and cared for them like an eagle. God is the one who did this, and it's in contrast to a foreign God. Moses says there was no foreign God that looked after the people of Israel. It was God alone who was faithful to them. And then in verse 13 and 14, he says, He made them ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, Rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank fo foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. 
So here we have a vivid description of what life is like in the promised land. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. It has cattle. It has grapes. This is a a foretelling of the promised land that Israel is to inherit. And again, it is God who gives the people this promised land. It is God who is providing for their every need. And yet... Again, in spite of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel, rather than reciprocating that by worshipping God, they decide to go after foreign gods. They decide to go after idols. Verse 15 is a very sobering condemnation of what Israel does. It says, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And how do they do this? How do they scoff at God? How do they forsake him? Moses tells us they stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. And here is a key. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To foreign gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So Moses here, he actually begins to to peel back this uh, layer of the supernatural world. And he says, what really is the true identity of the false gods that the other nations worship? The Canaanites, the Midianites, the Moabites, the Hittites, they worship these foreign gods But who are they actually worshipping? What is the reality behind these idols? Moses says they sacrifice to demons that are not, in fact, gods. Now, of course, the biblical prophets throughout the Bible, they talk about how useless idols are. And it's true. If you carve an idol with stone or wood, it can't do anything for you. It's, It's mute. It's dumb. It can't say. It can't speak. It can do no miracles. So the idol itself is completely useless. But the biblical authors also recognize that behind that idol was a very present and dangerous spiritual reality. That behind that idol that a man had made was actually a demonic presence. And Moses is not the only one to talk about this. For example, in... um, In Psalm 106, uh, David writes, They, that is the people of Israel, did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. So David says that when the people sacrificed their sons and daughters to the idols of Canaan, in reality they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons, to fallen angels. So behind this idol, which in itself is powerless and useless, 
there is a, an actual uh, spiritual reality and it's a, an evil reality. Paul, he echoes a similar idea uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So when Moses and David and Paul look at these idols that are worshipped by the other nations, they say that behind that idol, behind that statue, there is a real demonic entity or reality. And that worship of these idols is actually worship of demons. Now, again, what is Moses trying to tell us? He's trying to compare God's covenant faithfulness and his loyalty to Israel in comparison to Israel's continue, continuous idolatry and going after idols and, in reality, demons. And again, another way we could refer to these demons is as uh, fallen angels or fallen sons of God. These sons of God, remember, are angelic beings who used to work in cooperation with God. And even in Job chapter 1, Satan, he says that he is one of these sons of God. He says that he, is, uh, he has the right to act as a son of God, one of these people who, um, one of these angelic beings. So when Moses says that God divided the nations according to the sons of God at the Tower of Babel, in essence, what he's saying here is similar to what Paul says in Romans 1, that when humans they want to follow their sinful desires and passions, God gives them up or he gives them over to their, their sinful desires. God will not stand in the way of people going into the, the, the sinful behaviors that they ask. And the same is true at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is this symbol of direct rebellion against God. And Ellen White reveals in Patriarchs and Prophets that at this time, the people at Babel were idolaters. They were already, already worshipping demons uh, or fallen angels as idols. And so Moses says, at the Tower of Babel, God gave over these other nations to the worship of the idols they so desperately wanted to worship. If the people of these foreign nations were so desperate to worship these fallen angels, these demons, these idols... God was willing to give them over to that worship and suffer the consequences of that worship. But in contrast, God had taken the people of Israel to belong to him. The other nations, they belonged to these demons now. These, uh, he had given over the nations to the very desire that they wanted, which was to worship these idols. But God had taken his people, the people of Israel, to be his inheritance, his portion, his heritage, and they were to worship him alone because of all of the things that he had done 
for them. Let's just finish reading the last few verses here of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. It says, The Lord saw it, saw it, that is their idolatry, and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with that which is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So God concludes by saying that Israel, they continually make him jealous because they keep worshipping these other gods. And in fact, I like how Moses repeatedly on two occasions says, gods which are no gods. These demons, they've placed themselves in a position of worship, but they deserve no such worship. They are not God. They are not God in the same way that Yahweh is. People may treat them like that and worship them like that, but they have no right to occupy a position of worship. That alone, that position alone belongs to God. Now, what's interesting is this isn't the only time that Moses says this idea that the, the other gods, the, the other demons belong to the other nations, but not to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 4 verses 19 and 20, Moses says, Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted or given to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Notice this is, again, this language. The other gods were given over to the pagan nations. They wanted them, they get them. God allotted those uh, foreign gods, these demons, to the people under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you, Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. This is the same language in Deuteronomy 32.8. But Jacob is the Lord's portion, and Israel is God's inheritance. The other nations have been allotted these other uh, demonic realities, but God, Israel is God's inheritance. Moses repeats this idea in Deuteronomy 29, verse 25, 26. And prior to this, it talks about calamity coming upon the, uh, the people of Israel. So it says, then the people will say, in light of this calamity that's fallen Israel, why did this happen? It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord the God of their fathers, which he made with them. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom had not been allotted or given to them. Again, coming back to this idea in Deuteronomy 32, they keep worshipping gods who had not been given or allotted to them. These other gods were allotted or given to the pagan nations. God says, if you want to worship the idols, go for it. I'll give them over to you. But when it came to Israel, they were not to worship these other gods. They had not been allotted to them. God alone was to be worshipped by the Israelite people. 
Now, what's even more fascinating is other biblical authors quote Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9 again. And again, they see that this contrast is between worship of God and false gods. So, for example, the prophet Jeremiah, he says in Jeremiah 10, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. And at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32, 9. Not like these, not like these idols, these false gods, is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Again, this call back to Deuteronomy 32, 8. Israel is the tribe of God's inheritance. Israel belongs to God. The portion of Jacob belongs to God. And again, the contrast is in God versus these false gods, these demons. And Paul says the same thing when he's preaching in Athens and he's disturbed by the idolatry that is happening in Athens. And as he preaches, he again quotes Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. It says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's, again, this allusion to the event of of Babel. At Babel, God determined the boundaries of the people and he allotted them. So he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So notice Paul, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. And what does he say? God is not like these other false gods, these fallen angels, these demons who masquerade and pretend to be gods to be worshipped. He's not like an image made of gold or silver and stone. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who divided up mankind at uh, at the Tower of Babel. So even when other biblical authors quote from uh, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, Jeremiah and Paul, they have again this idea that it's God in competition with these false gods. And so really what we find here is this, this overall theme that the Bible authors are telling us, that there is a cosmic battle, a great controversy between God and these false gods. And as Moses said, these gods are no gods at all. They are demons. They're the fallen sons of God. There's this cosmic battle between God and the forces of Satan. And while God is trying to encourage people into a true worship of him, 
these demons are more than happy to keep people enslaved in a false counterfeit system of worship to them. And when we understand this idea, it really brings a whole new level of understanding to the theme of the Great Controversy. The main issue in the Great Controversy is what is the character, the nature, and the law of God really like? Is God really loving? Can he be trusted? Or is he uh, this corrupt dictator? Is he arbitrary in his lawmaking? And so God allowed for Satan an opportunity to demonstrate uh, what, what he would do in contrast. If God's method of ruling the universe is so bad, well, what would Satan's look like? And it's in this false worship systems that we actually see what a world or a universe under the rulership and worship of Satan would look like. The, these, particularly the Canaanite deities, would require human sacrifice, usually of children. This, these systems of worship, they not only endorsed, but often enabled immorality and sin. And so really, this is a, a, a perfect picture to demonstrate, again, this contrast between the rulership of God and the rulership of Satan. When Satan gets the worship that he so desperately desires, what does he do? He inflicts pain and suffering on humans. And then in contrast to God, God, he decides to pick this nation of Israel. How does God treat those who worship him? He provides for them. He takes care of them. He nurtures them. And this is in contrast with these other nations that are worshiping false gods and they're enslaved to sin. It really brings the, a, a new understanding to the, uh, the great controversy theme, looking at how these false systems of worship, they show us the character of Satan, which is sinful and evil, in contrast with true worship of God, which leads to love and provision. And so throughout the rest of the Bible, we see this ongoing theme of God versus these false gods. God against the satanic forces. One really good example is in the story of the Exodus. When it comes to the final plague of the Exodus, God says the following. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So God says, not only is this final plague a judgment on the Egyptians who are refusing to let the Israelites free, but it's a judgment on the gods of Egypt. And again, when we read um, the insights of Ellen White on the plagues, the magicians were able to replicate the first two plagues that Moses and Aaron performed. And the only reason they were able to do that was because of these demons working in the background. But after those two plagues were replicated, we're told that God would not allow for the demons to have any, uh, be able to replicate any of these other plagues. God actively stood uh, against these uh, demons. Uh, another example 
is when it comes to the Philistines. They capture the Ark of the Covenant in a battle and they place the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their pagan god Dagon. And they leave it overnight and when they come back in the morning, the statue of Dagon has collapsed. The idol has collapsed and it's lying face forward in front of the Ark of the Covenant as though giving worship. It's lying prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. And this is what the people say when they find it. They say, the Ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And again, knowing the spiritual reality behind these idols, we know that behind Dagon, there was an evil spiritual force. And so in reality, what they're saying is, God's hand of judgment is against the Philistines and against Dagon or the spiritual reality behind this idol. Even the story of Elijah, there's a competition between God and Baal. And again, Baal is unable to produce fire from heaven. God prevents Satan and his forces from performing that miracle. And yet Elijah, his altar to the one true God, has fire brought down on it. So over and over again, we have these stories of God being in competition with these false gods. And every single time, God is victorious. Every single time, Satan loses. And God is showing that he is the one true God that all worship should be given to, not to these false idols and other pagan gods. And ultimately, this culminates in the New Testament, in the life and ministry of Jesus. We see as Jesus travels around on his ministry journey, there are repeated stories of him casting out or driving out demons from possessed people. Jesus is showing that he has power and authority over these demons. He has power over the spiritual realm. He is the one in charge. Jesus, again, wins and Satan loses. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, the very first miracle that Jesus performs is exercising out a demon or an unclean spirit. And in effect, it's showing us that as Jesus travels around on his ministry journey, he's driving out these demons from these territories and these areas. It's as though he's reclaiming back these areas that had been given over to the demons. Perhaps the most striking example of this is in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we have the record of Jesus sending out the 70. Now, that number 70 is particularly relevant because it appears in another biblical story. And that biblical story is, again, the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 10, we have a record of all of the nations following the division uh, of the people at the Tower of Babel. It's often called the Table of Nations. And in the Table of Nations, we have a record of, take a guess how many nations there are, there are 70. Following the Tower of Babel event, there are 70 nations or people groups divided up, as God says. And at that point, God gives the people over to their sinful desires of idolatry. He gives them over to their their idolatry and worship. And yet here, 
Jesus in Luke 10, he sends out a group of 70 and he is going to, in effect, undo or reverse the Tower of Babel event. He is going to reclaim the nations uh, or the territory symbolically from these demonic rulers. Let's just have a look, uh, a look at Luke chapter 10, and this is our final text we'll read together. Luke chapter 10, and let's see specifically what happens uh, during the ministry of Jesus sending out the 70. Luke chapter 10, and we'll read verse 17. Luke 10, 17. What, what do the disciples report when they come back from their mission? It says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So here, as Jesus sends out 70 people, it's as though symbolically he is reclaiming the nations that were uh, lost at the Tower of Babel event. And it's explicit because the disciples come back and they say, Lord, we were able to drive out spirits. We were able to drive out the demons. They were subject to us. And Jesus tells them, yes, because I gave you authority to do so. This is a reversing of the events of the Tower of Babel. Even uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts, we see the same thing happen. At the event of Pentecost, God gives the disciples the ability to speak different languages. And again, that's a, a reversal of the Tower of Babel event. At Babel, the languages were confused. But here at Pentecost, God gives his people the ability to speak different languages to portray and preach the gospel. And we're told that there are people from all over the world who are at uh, this Pentecost event. And it's interesting because the order of the nations given goes from east to west. So it goes from one side all the way to the other. And each one of those nations or those territories is representative of the 70 nations in Genesis 10 at the Tower of Babel event again. All of them listed, uh, if you go all of the nations under Genesis 10, you would be able to place them under one of the nations or territories mentioned uh, at the event of Pentecost. So again, the Tower of Babel theme is present. And here God continues to reclaim even more nations. The gospel is going out to all the nations. And those, those, uh, those 70 nations of Babel are represented in Acts 2 again, and the gospel is going to them. Satan is very quickly losing his strongholds over these other nations. The gospel of Jesus is going out to the world and the good news to worship God alone is being preached. Now, there's a really beautiful phrase to describe uh, this idea in the life, of life and ministry of Jesus. The early Christians called it Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ Victorious. 
And I, I find that just a beautiful phrase, Christus Victor, Christ Victorious. As the early Christians looked at the life of Jesus and they saw that he had power over the supernatural realm, he was able to drive out demons, he had authority to command them. They saw Jesus as being this triumphant leader, him reclaiming the world to be under his power, taking away the role of the rulership of Satan and making Jesus the new son of God. He is the new son of God who rules over the entire world and he is victorious over Satan. Just as we saw God victorious over the false gods in the Old Testament, Jesus is victorious over the the demons and the powers of Satan in the New Testament. Christ victorious. Jesus is the winner. Satan just continues to lose and lose and lose. Jesus is the one who is victorious. Now, of course, the ultimate culmination of this is going to be at the great white throne judgment where Satan and his forces are destroyed forever. Finally, the world is set free from Satan and his influence. A new heaven and new earth will be created again, and God will have complete rulership over it. And I want to finish by reading one last verse from a prophet who, again, quotes from Deuteronomy 32. And he, this time, he looks forward to a point in history where God is victorious. And he does it by quoting again from Deuteronomy 32. This is the prophet Zechariah. As he looks forward to a new Jerusalem, he says, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So notice God, he is bringing all nations to be under him. All nations will worship him. No longer will the nations worship these false gods, but they will worship him. It says, I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion. Again, a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32.9. God is going to inherit Judah again in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Except this time, the people in this new Judah or this new Israel and the people who live in this new Jerusalem will be people from many nations. Every tribe, nation and tongue will be a part of this new Judah, this new Jerusalem. And again, I love that God says, just as I chose you at the Tower of Babel, I'm going to choose you again to be my portion and my inheritance. I will choose you to be my people. And this group of people will be from many nations across the world. It won't just be the, the, the Jews themselves. It'll be people from across the world who come into this new kingdom that I am creating. So how do we apply this to our lives? Well, I think it's an incredibly encouraging encouraging message to look at the fact that God says one day he is going to have complete rulership of this world without any competition. Satan and his, uh, and his forces, there will be no presence of them on the new heaven and the new earth anymore. God will finally be ultimately and completely victorious. He will be the one who wins in the end. And I think it's important that we also keep in mind, 
again, this idea that we live in the midst of a cosmic battle. We live in the midst of this great controversy. And in this great controversy, Satan is trying to bring anyone and anyone into worshipping anything but God. These days, particularly in our culture, Satan doesn't usually try and give off uh, idols of silver and gold or wood or of stone. But he's still making idols to distract and lead people away from a true worship of God. Whether it's uh, idolatry um, of wealth or success, whether it's uh, idolatry of popularity or fame, it's material possessions, uh, whether it's lust or uh, wanting to improve oneself and almost self-idolatry. There are so many idols today that Satan will try and use to bring people away from God. And so we really have a duty and a responsibility to try and do away with these idols and point people into the direction of a true worship to God. We should also, I think, continue to be encouraged by the fact that God, as we see in the Old Testament and in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, God is reclaiming the people. He's reclaiming the nations. He's reclaiming uh, that dominion and authority away from Satan. And it's interesting that Jesus, the last thing he says to his disciples in Matthew 28 is, All authority under heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' command for us to go and make disciples is predicated on the idea that he has authority over the whole earth. He is the new son of God who rules over the earth. He is the representative of this planet. And he gives us the authority to go out and preach to all nations to bring them into that good news. We are called to prepare people for that final day of judgment. And when that day comes, we want for them to be a part of God's portion, to be a part of God's inheritance, a people that God chooses in that new Jerusalem. So the question is, do we take that calling seriously enough? Are we doing enough to bring people into that new Jerusalem, into the inheritance and portion of God? Are we participating in the triumphant missionary march of Jesus under that banner, Christ victorious? If Christ is the ultimate victor, and he is, what do we have to fear from Satan and his forces. I want to encourage us this morning, if we're not taking seriously enough the cosmic battle that we're in and the calling that we have to bring people into the kingdom of God, let's, let's change that. Let's change that in our personal lives. The reason Israel kept wandering off to other idols is because they forgot what God had done for them. If we go back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, the people forgot what God provided for them, that God had done everything possible for them. They forgot all of the things that God had done. They had no gratitude. And because of that forgetfulness, they wandered off after other gods, after idols. Perhaps we sometimes make that same mistake. And perhaps 
if we want to take more seriously the calling that God has placed on our hearts, the calling that every Christian has, we need to remember how God has saved us. We need to reflect on all of the things which God has done for us. So I want to encourage you this afternoon as you take time to uh, take time to spend with God on the Sabbath. Be intentional in reflecting on what God has done for you in your life. Think of specific times or events where you know God has provided for you. Think about your testimony and how God has rescued you from sin. And when we begin to reflect and think about all the good things that God has done for us, we will be motivated to bring other people into that same experience, to bring them into the kingdom of God and have them be a part of God's inheritance and portion. And when we, when we find that, that motivation, that enthusiasm, that conviction to share the gospel, I want to encourage you to not be afraid of anything. Christ is victorious. Christus Victor, Christ is victorious. He's shown us in the Old Testament, he's shown us in the New Testament, and he shows us even still today that against the forces of Satan and against the forces of evil, God is always ultimately victorious. And we should be proud to go and be missionaries for God. My Christ is victorious.